The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Tua T Fitness and the Vegas Beer Guys. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the 1990s edition, part two. Today we're talking three men and a little lady. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man you know, the man you love, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hi, Tom. Kick it. No, oh, <laughs> introducing Mike, Peter, and Jack. Your rhyming three does do in the merry rap. Just a little lady, you need your sleep. Don't want no job talking about something to eat. We're partying down, dancing till dawn. Your food spitting, toilet training changed our song. We're situated about you as fathers in waiting. Rather hang with you than the one he's been dating. Say, Mary, did you wash your face? Say, Mary, did you brush your teeth? Mike, be nimble. Peter, be quick. Jack bust a rhyme and we make it slick. To little Lady Mary, we say please just close your eyes and cop some Z's. Ooga, ooga, ooga. <laughs> just close them eyes and cop some Z's. Wink, wink, wink. Just close them eyes and cop some Z's. Ooga, ooga, ooga. Just close them eyes and cop some Z's. Holy shit. All I now, could think during that scene was that that child would not be able to get to sleep for hours. Hours. Look, I know that there's a there's a lot politically to and historically yes. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> with this rap. However, I think it's tightly written. <laughs> well performed. And I I struggle, and this is an overall note for the movie, I struggle to separate it from my overall affection for both the movie and some of the actors. Yeah. Particularly Ted Danson. Because oh. when he's rapping, I'm put in mind of my one of my favorite Cheers episodes, mm -hmm. in which Sam Malone becomes a... Uh, TV sports commentator. Yes. And does such a terrible job that he decides to start rapping his news reports. <laughs> and this is this is my this is my overall problem with this film. Is how much how much am I drawn to it through sheer affection and how much is it actually um a good movie and a funny movie. I can't... And half the time I don't know. Yes, exactly. I can't even begin to tell you how, how my expectation of this movie was reversed into deep thought about this movie as a sequel, as a film itself. Yeah. Separate from a sequel. Mm-hmm. There, there are, there's, this rap is a, maybe one of the least interesting conversations we could have about it. You know what I mean? And yet, yeah. you're right in the sense of the problems that it has politically, and yeah. yet I feel the same way that you do in terms of the over-the-topness. Over you know, clearly, 
there's a there's a definite sense from all everybody that is involved in this movie that they don't understand. You know, there's a, a hubris behind it. They don't understand hmm. why why what they're doing is wrong. Yes. And yet it's still likable. Yeah. That's kind absolutely. of interesting to me. There's several examples of that. And like and you, also, I could say, say that all about a lot of this movie. And there's another split in this movie, I think, between um and the the rap is a prime example of, of one of these between parts of 90s movies that now seem unthinkable mm-hmm. in modern in modern day movies versus yeah. moments where you feel like they're actually kind of ahead of the game and they feels very contemporary very modern in a way you don't expect a, ni- a 1990 movie to be i've got many notes that are very very similar yes and it is like one and one mhm a one to one ratio of that almost yeah which is why you know you can sort of you can enjoy the 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 a moment like the 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 three men and a little lady rap um more than you would in a movie that is full of that kind of right, stuff right right it's 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 not it doesn't it's a it one off in this movie. movie it's a one off moment uh, well it's I, a two I, or a three off <laughs> there's a lot of examples most of them are not as don't have the potential to that have it, that have problems with race. Oh, do you consider the British a race? Yeah, well, okay, all right, fine. Yeah, because I right. don't, and that makes the second half of the movie palatable for me. Okay, good. If I had any kind of cultural pride, I'd probably despise this movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> the second half is really laying into my yes. people in a big way. <laughs> You're right. You're right. But I don't mind. I I agree mostly. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't guessed, we're catching back up with single sequels from 1990. For further information, yes. please listen to our previous episode. Yeah. We'll explain the long journey, but essentially Tom and I discovered that there are four 1990 movies that are single sequels that we missed, and yeah. this is the first one we're doing. Three men and, and if you a haven't lady. heard the first four, if you yeah, three men and a little lady, and if you haven't heard the first four, you can go back and listen to that. They're at the very beginning of the podcast. Absolutely. Scroll down that feed. Back when, back when we, it was questionable as to whether or not we knew what we were doing. Yes. <laughs> yes, we we covered that. <laughs> we covered that at the end of yeah. the episode. Don't we, skip the last episode. Yeah, we, don't do it. We. Re- <laughs> <laughs> we had a heart to heart with ourselves. <laughs> so we've we've to paraphrase a famous song, we've been to me. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this. So Three Men and a Little Lady, obviously a nineteen ninety sequel. Forty percent yeah. on Rotten Tomato. <laughs> Obvious now. Yeah. Wasn't back yeah, in you're right. fucking two years ago <laughs> when we missed this completely. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, Tom. Okay. Uh I'm not disagreeing hard with uh, that. Yeah, I'm not either, but 
I I would give it the benefit of the doubt more. Yeah, I think so. But I can see where that rating is coming from. Uh, it's directed by Emil Ardolino. Um, this guy's got some form when it comes to this kind of movie. You know, Dirty Dancing, Chances Are, Sister Act, The Nutcracker. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he's you know, definitely. I was surprised to see. Yeah, I was surprised to see all those movies and realize he's not on my radar. I don't remember him. I, I realize I did not remember by name the director of Dirty Dancing. You can really thread the needle with those movies, right? It's (laughs) like you can. It's it, that those are that's not a big surprise that he's in charge of those movies. No, I don't think. Yeah, right. But, uh, listen, I don't. But have, he's inheriting. But of course, he's inheriting the franchise from from Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. And as I understand it, Leonard Nimoy was approached to do the sequel, did not do it. So I think he was going to do doing Funny About Love with Gene Wilder. Hmm. And I recall reading that. He felt that was a mistake. Which part? Doing that movie and not this movie. Oh. I was going to say, he's not averse to doing sequels, as we know. No, yeah. We've just watched We've two We've covered of them. them, yeah. And he's very good at it, as we know. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's curious. I, I suppose in the back of my mind, I assumed he, he did this too. Um, mm-hmm. But I was also interested to I, see... I knew, I remembered that he did not do the sequel. I'm also interested to see that, that the series was taken over by someone with such form making, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know, what would you call them? Like, not quite romantic comedies, but definitely in that ilk. Yeah, I mean, it's... I guess Sister Act is a romantic comedy, you could just about say. Mm. Dirty Dancing isn't. Yeah, that's the thing, is that if you told me that this director directed Chances Are and Sister Act, I'd think, okay, I get that's that seems like you know I don't want to dismiss him as much as saying the cookie cutter kind of aspect of those three yeah. three movies. I I get that. Yeah. Dirty Dancing's kind of an outlier. Yeah. In which he seems to be doing something different in that movie. But yet it still makes sense. Interestingly, we have not covered Dirty Dancing, but have covered Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights. Yes, of course. <laughs> because of the world we have created this, for ourselves. This, this, is, this is the life we've chosen. <laughs> this is the, this <clears throat> is the life we've chosen. <laughs> All right. The full Hyman Roth cough. I, I have the similar... <laughs> I have similar vibes uh, that I did during the Bad News Bears sequels. I could not find any... Oh, in- no could, information? Could find no information on a budget, but opening weekend, $13.7 million, and in the USA and in the world, seventy-one point six. I doubt they spent a lot of money making this in 1990, you know, even if the budget was $20 million. Hmm. Well, I was, I was, uh, I was one of the world. Saw this at the movie theater. I was going to ask you. Whenever it came to us, which would have been, I imagine, 91. Okay. Um, I definitely saw it in the theater. 
I, tr- I mean, I didn't realize. I don't think I've seen it since then. I have not seen it in a very long time, for sure. And uh, it's amazing how much of it stuck with me. Yeah, me too. It's so much so that it, I, I actually, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, I think this shape this movie shaped my thoughts about fatherhood some aspects of british life oh, okay <laughs> that's amazing and i only realized that seeing it uh, like a few days ago wow and going back to it um but that's definitely part of the affection i hold from the movie the other part of it is the uh the actors on both sides of the of the pond mm-hmm. um well particularly ted danson who I, love, I feel like is is perennially underrated. I think he's I gonna, do too, and I had the same. The man is gonna the man is gonna die, and he will still be on. He he could have underutilized. Even his, like, yeah, even all the sort of post death plaudits that people put on us will be nope, still underrated. It'll be half as much as he deserves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and when I watch uh, some of the work he's done, say in damages or. Damages was fucking out of this world. I swear they he shouldn't have been in the second season of that. Yeah, right. Or the third season. I swear that was a game day decision to just mm-hmm. like, can we do this without Ted Danson? <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think about that or the second, I think it's the second season of Fargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, work, yeah, yeah. The work he's been doing he for that. years on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. I I and like you, I mean I, I grew, particularly like him in Cobra Enthusiasm. Yeah, I grew up on Cheers. Mm-hmm. Cheers is one of my all-time favorite sitcoms ever. Agreed. Yeah. Like a top 3, I think. I I sort love of undeniable. Love that Yeah, love 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 that show. And not to argue against that. There are times when I'm watching this either of these movies, the first one or this one, where I think to myself that I am watching a man play essentially the same character as Sam Malone, and yet he <laughs> seems completely different. But I think that's that's the key to understanding why Ted Danson is better than you probably think he is. Right. The man is a genuine character actor. He's mm-hmm. sort of been... He's been utilized in comedy. He's not a comedian. Right, yeah. Uh, he almost to sort of Gene Hackman standards. Of, oh my God! I can't believe you just said that. I was going to bring that up. You know, he's he's a char- he's a he's a dramatic character actor who has a gift for comedy. Mm-hmm. In the same way Hackman is. Yeah. But I I never I never lose the sense of the character he's playing. Right. Which is interesting in this movie because he is the he he is the designated comic relief, even more so than Steve Guttenberg, which right. surprised me. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, he's literally you know there are moments in this movie when he's either leaning he's into the gag or man. actually looking straight into the camera. Yes, barrel, right? Like a and you know they use him as a they use him as a clown mm-hmm. in both these movies, but. Particularly this movie, and yet there are there are a couple moments, and I won't speak to it yet because I want to get to it when we get to it. But there's a moment later in the film where he becomes the anchor 
in a way yeah. that surprised me and it was a scene that I so greatly appreciated. I I it honestly kind of gobsmacked me. But even though he is kind of has this sort of rodeo clown mm -hmm. quality in this film, he never succumbs to that. He always rises right. above it. It's always Jack. Yeah. And I mean I think that's astonishing performance. Um couldn't he, agree more. In in this movie, in this movie particularly, he's asked to do a lot of heavy lifting comedically, and he comes out on top not because everything he does is hilarious, although it is, <laughs> but it's because he somehow retains the sense of the character behind the jokes to sort of, sort of, uh, you know, again, and I, I felt the same in Damages. I was like. This guy's really funny, but that's not what's getting me about this character. Yeah, right. <laughs> Arthur Frobisher. See, I, already, I remember his name. <laughs> that's great. That's what a dancing does for you. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I have some things to say about Tom Selleck, too, because there was, a, too. Lo there was a lot in this movie that surprised me about Tom Selleck, because there are moments in Tom Selleck's career whatever folks or uh what's the movie he did with paulina poroskova anyway there are moments in tom Selleck's career where he goes for the funny and mm. you know he it's funny you can see a shtick you can see a shtick right. that tom Selleck uses when he needs to be funny and in this, you somehow not mentioned magnum pi at this point i don't know how that's well, i don't know how I, you've managed that i I I I consider Magnum PI a, a thing all unto its own. Oh, I agree. And but I, that that character is Tom, so that, that's Tom Selleck's shtick, right? It, yeah, I guess. But I I feel in it's I feel way. like it's always grounded in the character. And to me it's like he borrows mm. from that into other roles where I can see the actor and not the character. In Magnum sure. PI I always see the character. And I, th I think Ted Danson is the MVP of this movie, but I when I watch Tom Selleck in this movie, I, I do see Peter. I don't think we're going to have much disagreement. I felt exactly the same way. And okay. I think it was such a good choice of this movie, and I don't think it's necessarily the case with the original. They pushed him into the heartthrob box. Mm -hmm. And often when you go back to, to movies from yesteryear, and you look at who was supposed to be the heartthrob at that time. Yeah. Right. Often you go, what were they thinking? Why? Why? What? What? <laughs> None of that applies to Tom Selleck. No, yeah. I mean, he, he quite literally seduces me in this movie with his voice, with his body, with his face, all of it. Yeah. I'm his for this. All right, good. He's such a seductive actor, and that's something this movie gets more than most Tom Most movies, yeah, yeah. I mean, he. I don't know if it makes plot sense for him to sort of become to this for this movie to be a, uh, you know, like a heteronormative romance, for want of a better word. Okay, yeah. Like I don't know if that's the best choice given what the first movie was. Yeah, right. But. I like the fact that they're leaning into Tom Selleck as the 
as the device for this. Okay. Yeah. To get you there. Because there are I mean he is he's just dreamy <laughs> throughout. That's great. I even had moments where I was like I don't want Harrison Ford not to have played Indiana Jones. Right. But I would love it if there was like a the way a sort of James Bond like way to sort of have go back in Tom time Selleck and see what he would have done. While, yeah, right. And then Harrison Ford could go back to being him or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. You well, see him in a tux. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I got a question for you right off the bat. Am I gay? Possibly for Tom Selleck. All right. <laughs> carry on. No, carry on. <laughs> you do you. <laughs> but we've talked about logos in the past. And when <laughs> I see the touchstone the touchstone logo. Yeah. It's like the Orion. It 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 invokes the warm and fuzzies for me. And this was I a agree. division of Disney where I saw that logo and I thought the first thing I thought was I'm going to see a movie I like. Yeah. The only the only issue I have with it is that it, the music and the logo taken independently are so ominous. Doesn't really fit a light comedy. <laughs> It's definitely a contrast to the open to to the actual opening of this movie. Yes, right. It's not it's not a smooth transition into a uh what do we say sped up footage? Yes. So synthesizer sa- accompanied I, by synthesizer. I got to tell you seeing this opening really threw me for a loop because to me I thought it was such an interesting way for a sequel to start because you're getting so much information, but you're getting it in sped up music montage. Yeah. And I started thinking, like, is are there other sequels that have done this? Because this should be an impasse, but I'm not sure that it is. I think that I think for me, the confusion was why does this need to be sped up? Okay, yeah, that, you know, I'm with you on that. Yeah, <laughs> because it's already a passage of time montage. The events are already going fast. To to me, it was... <laughs> to me, I thought it was a given that this was all the stuff they wanted to show. But if yes. they didn't speed it up, it would be too long. So they condensed it to fit but, the credits. No, no, but the, the, the montage makes it short. You don't need to speed it up. <laughs> I understand why... I understand the need to bridge the gaps between the, the films. But... Why does it need to look like an undercranked silent film? (laughs) (laughs) But I also think it in and of itself, metaphorically, it represents the movie kind of well. Because there are so many things in this movie that I like, and yet the important stuff, narratively, a lot is clunky and not earned or written well Mm. and there are so many convenient devices this movie uses just to push the narrative forward whereas really what could happen is one conversation could be had and this movie could be over in 40 minutes but sure yes you know what I mean we're back back to the threes company yeah right it's sort of it's it's where um you know it's where Shakespeare meets Three's Company right there's the sort of yeah 
if if you resolve one misunderstanding, the whole thing would be over in seconds. Yes. And yet, you know, hearing me say that, it would sound as though I've got issues with the writing, and I do. Yet, (laughs) (laughs) in the development of characters, they address those things. Yes, yeah, funny, isn't it? it, it they give reasons why the characters aren't ways, doing, yeah. yeah, aren't doing the obvious things that they should be doing, and that to me made this a fascinating movie to watch. Yeah, and again, it's it's a movie that in so many ways is divided against itself. Mm-hmm. Actually, the you know from story onwards, <laughs> right? There are two movies here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Movie. Absolutely. Two very distinct movies. Um, and so, and, and that's just another example of how it's divided against itself. Sometimes the screenwriting is lazy, <laughs> right? Conventional, and then other times it's extremely unconventional, and is actually working quite hard. Yes. So and again, is nuanced. It's too. split. There's yeah. a duality here. Um, they get through a ton in this opening sequence. Um, so much. What struck me as a parent who's recently gone through these stages of childhood, mm-hmm. they really need to think more about divisions of labor. <laughs> They're all there all the time. That's right. not how, that's not how co-parenting works, guys. As soon, it's like tag. As soon as one, as soon as, soon as you, you have to just yes. tag team out. Right. Um, it's like tag team wrestling. Because little children are small, but relentless opponents. Yes, I, I both want to talk about my next note, but I also feel like okay, it's going to open a, a can of worms, and, and I, use, I, use, I use that metaphor um, quite accurately. Um, and this is the note. I'll just read it. Okay. I see your Superman 2 little boy penis, <laughs> and I raise you three men and a lady, little girl ass. Yes. <laughs> yes. And after that, I've just written sequel shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you Quite say that. Quite literally in this case. Because I wrote down, I wrote down, this is a little boy penis replacement. Yeah. But I also had this conscious thought of movies from the 80s, and I, I know this is 1990, but... We'll no, say... that's a very important point. It's yeah. still the 80s. I so think so, too. hasn't happened yet. Right. And so, there's such a difference between a movie made then and a movie made now, where I think that you know, it would be considered obscene now, almost. Right. And it was just a given. This is a child, so it's not weird. Yep, no one walked out. Yeah. In 1990. Never. No one thought it was was, uh, exploitative. But it really, I mean, it it really made me think of how different culture is. Yes. Where we are now as as opposed to then. Just with one little shot of an ass. Uh, and what to... the titles also reminded me of is, I'm trying to think, like when this started and when this ended, 
early 90s American rom-coms that were based on French yeah, media. Right. <laughs> I mean, Ted Danson's in at least one more of these. <laughs> There's a couple of Gerard Depardieu. There's a Birdcage. French-American remake. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, do we, do we, do we still, are we still going to French media? I mean, there's, you know, Intouchable, that was a pretty big, well, American remake of a, of a, of a a French hit. I was astounded to, not astounded, but I, I, you know, I, I was surprised to get the title of Three Men in a Crate, a Cradle, Mm -hmm. which by the way is Kufin. So at first I thought, wait, is that movie titled (laughs) Three Men in a Coffin? Because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know the in language. In which case, Tom. I approve of the re- I approve yeah. of remaking it as a as an upbeat comedy. <laughs> if it ends with a child in a coffin. But I did think it was interesting that an original written sequel, because it said based on still, huh? And and so I it made me wonder how long is that movie Three Men in a Cradle? Yeah. You know how how much story is go you know, or is it just or is it just is it is it is, is it kind it of like based, based on yeah. characters by you know right 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 yeah interesting yeah, um, but it it, it seemed to me that there was a lot of these around this time in the mm-hmm. early nineties yeah cousins that's definitely mm-hmm. the, the Ted Danson movie that was originally a yeah. French like Le Cousine. <laughs> um, that's not, that really is what it's called. I know that sounded like I know. facetious, but it was. <laughs> Blame the French, not me. I do. Um, so do I. <laughs> uh, and then I thought something that, like a lot of it is not terribly funny. And then it ends with a really good joke, which is blindfolding Mary as she goes mm-hmm. into the restroom in the baseball stadium. Yeah. I thought that's like a glimmer of real comedy in an otherwise sort of like kidified right comedy movie, and that's kind of how it goes from now on. It's sort of like every you're very de- you're definitely in a not a kids movie but a child friendly movie. Sure, and then occasionally you get a moment of really solid to excellent comedy, mm-hmm. and then it goes back to the sort of baseline of average jokes yeah for a while mm-hmm. um so that the the opening sequence is like a it encapsulates the whole movie yeah right um in in various ways and something one of my favorite shots in the movie and i think it's actually really intelligent filmmaking is the shot of mary following mary mary through the house with a what looks like a steady cam yeah or some kind of mobile camera and that was a really effective way of showing that the perspective is a change from the grown-ups to the child. To the child, right. We're now following I, the I movie have the same through note. Mary. Yeah. Great. I mean, yeah. it's a really efficient, intelligent way to make that point. Mm-hmm. And great sequel filmmaking because... Yes, right. I mean, we haven't, we haven't discussed something which... You know, even recently we were talking... We were saying, what are the examples of sequels that capitalize on characters aging mm-hmm. and we couldn't think of many this is one this is a good example the omen we were talking about the omen at the time and we were sort of saying it's a rarity but it seems like sequels have the potential to do this but yeah. they don't often capitalize on that potential this certainly does 
Well, obviously, because the first movie comes out in 87, and so this movie comes out in 1990, but I couldn't help but think about, and, and there's a time jump for the character, because the yeah. character is an infant now five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I couldn't help but think about Boyhood while watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thought if the franchise went on, three men and a teenager, you know, there was a plan for a three men and a bride. Yeah, I mean, even recently, even in the last five to eight years, I think there was a plan for a three men and a bride that just never kind yeah. of came together. And as I understand it, there's a reboot with Zac Efron being planned. Oh. Oh. Uh, but, <sighs> well, but that's that speaks we'll that have to deal with maybe. Today. But that speaks to what you're talking about, about, yeah, uh, you know, just good, good sequel ideas and good filmmaking. Yeah. Capitalizing you... on what is inherent yeah. to film sequels and film series. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I had the same thought that it's interesting that this stopped here, given yeah. the endless potential to sort of find Mary at. At various points at of her life stages of her life yeah. yeah you could have at least got one more out of it right um and i wonder why they didn't hmm. well listen we're not too far but i've got a big yep. conversation that i want to start so why don't we take a break mm. and then we'll come back sure all right we'll do that ladies and gentlemen right after this we'll speed through <laughs> the uh these announcements there you go Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out To A T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. To A T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 1990 sequel, Three Men and a Little Lady, directed by Emil Ardolino, the guy you don't know that you know. Yeah. Uh, so, Tom, I was hinting at... He made a lot of films that you probably rented at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was hinting at a big conversation I wanted to had, have. Uh, uh, something yeah. really interesting was happening as I was watching the beginning of this movie. Because I yeah. had nothing but questions. <laughs> I, I thought to myself... At the beginning of a sequel? Yeah. I thought to myself, by today's standards, is anything that's happening in this house okay? 
Is it weird? Is it not weird? What's yeah. going on? What happens with these men's lives? With who they're dating? How does that work? What's going on? And the second I had so many questions, I didn't think I could stand it anymore. The movie addresses it. And yes. Nancy Travis's character <laughs> keeps saying, is this sustainable? What's going on? Yeah. Isn't this weird for me, for Mary, for you three? Like, can we just keep doing this or should this end? What's going on? And I thought that was so interesting that this movie was able also, to scratch that itch at the exact moment I needed it. But from a contemporary perspective, it's also one of the sadder aspects of the movie that that they do question it so much because yeah, their idea of, of a, like a non-traditional family unit is far more commonplace now. And what they're taught, the the kind of the the family unit that they that they have in this this movie is kind of groundbreaking in how non traditional it is, mm-hmm. and the fact that they move away from that so quickly and try and make it heteronormative, you know, a romance, you know, married romance of marriage between one man and one woman again. It sort of smacks to me of like neoliberalism and how that was trying to like merge the forces of conservatism with that of liberalism and well but i felt i thought it was just the story of the 1990s yeah but i thought it was interesting because in 1990 it was still grow up by you know get married buy a house have kids yeah which is not really our life anymore but you can see that that you can see that moral narrative Mm -hmm. thrust upon the characters in this movie because that's what we believed then yeah but they're in a kind of ut- they're in a kind of utopia, and I wish uh-huh. I wish the resolution of this movie was that they 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 reintegrate that utopia when it's broken apart, mm. and that is kind of what happens. I was gonna say I don't know that we don't know that that is you know. But but we end up w- w- I mean skip all the way to the end. We end up with a much more conservative version of the family unit than we had at the sure, beginning. Sure, absolutely. So it feels like a compromise between. But I also traditional I, and non-traditional parenting. You can't get and, away from that. But I also think that this movie is strangely nimble enough to focus enough on characters in a way where all of that makes sense. It's okay if that's the end product if two people do truly fall in love. Right. You know. Yeah, and I mean it's it's not. It's not unusual, right? To quote Tom Jones, um, <laughs> like a show, like lots of lots of uh, media that shows groundbreaking representations of of sex, of romance, marriage, like Sex and the City. That that ended with everyone getting married. Yeah, off. right. Like it was a like it was a musical from the nineteen thirties. Sure. So there's always that sort of the forces of the repressive forces of traditionalism mm-hmm. on these kinds of narratives. Um, even in the kinds of narratives that are trying to subvert that those those norms, which I think this absolutely was by the last movie ended ending with this this kind of for want of a better word, modern family. Yeah, right. Um 
but it's interesting that this film is kind of about taking that apart and rearranging it in a way that's more palatable for mm-hmm. a mainstream audience, almost. Um, but that's more about the political project of the movie. I agree with you in terms of the screenplay. Um, and I do find... Because there's you know, very in, little in this, narrative... In lots of... Sorry, go ahead. No, in lots of small ways, I think this is a very this is still very groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where, which is kind of coming up, where is it? Is it Tom Selleck? Oh, who I can't remember who it was. Says that Mary, it's okay to be different. Yeah. No, like, Ted. Yeah, sure. It's Jack that says that, but it's Jack. It's like sure, you know. Well, that's the white heteronormative version of this. But in 1990, I bet that line meant a lot to someone mm-hmm. who saw this movie. Just saying that. But that was, it also felt like one of those convenient moments to me because that's the moment where they're interviewing at the school and Mary is seeing kids for the first time. She's drawn a picture of what's going, you know, of her family. And I forget the, what, what's the, what's the verbiage she uses? A bonus daddy or uh, my. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. I think it is that. Yeah. Something like that. So she has her biological daddy, her mom, and then a bonus daddy and a second bonus daddy. And one kid tells her, you know, yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that this movie had the kid that talks to her and makes her feel weird about it. He said, you know, you can have two dads, but you can't have three. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then it's that moment of, of, a, of a father with a daughter and he says, you know, it's okay to be different. And she just sort of smiles like that fixes all problems. But... She's probably internalized but, a I, bit more, and so, to me, it was one sure, of those. Sure, but I, I think that that I'm I'm thinking less about within the world, more just sort of talking to okay. the audience at that point. Yeah, and it just stood out to me. It's like that's a great thing for this movie to be doing is just to say that. I agree. Yeah, you know, to um, and it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like it's that sort of thing where you don't realize how progressive you are until you encounter the rest of the world so mm-hmm. you know the, the this this private school system and the other kids are saying you know what is the norm and she's living outside the norm yeah um and i it, i'm not quite sure how much of that is representative of the movie's point of view and how much of that is like the how much they're supposed to be the antagonists or how much they're just supposed to be the the tough love just coming in and saying, if you're going to live in the world, right. this can't go on. Mm-hmm. It's a mixture of both at different times, I think. Right. Um, because it's the people working at the school that say she's a bright kid and she's lovely. and Yeah, and they keep trying to label them. They would like, are you, are you gay? And they're like, no, you know, they do. The, of course, the, they the have the homophobia moment. Yeah. The homophobia moment, um, which is, you know, realistic enough, I think, in this context. Um, though unnecessary as it always is. Right. But, um, you know, it's the institutions that are trying to turn them into something they're not. And there's, there's a way in this movie sort of plays out like a tragedy, which I don't mm-hmm. think is like the, how it's supposed to, you know, it's, it's not what the, it's not the kind of movie that we're, that, the, that they're telling us it is, but if yeah, you sort right. of track it, you can track it like a tragedy where this, this utopian, uh, society that they've created is shattered is, apart. Is, yeah, fallen to pieces. By the return of traditional institutions like marriage 
and schools. But what I found interesting was that... British people. (laughs) What I found interesting was that this movie does... This movie's able to do something with a very out-of-the-norm-for-the-time family situation, but make it feel kind of normal in the sense of there's plenty of two-parent households, uh, parents get divorced, and all of a sudden a child is splitting time between a mother and a father and now might be dealing with a stepmother and a stepfather at some point. Right. And this movie is able to make that kind of situation feel like the situation that's happening to Mary just within the confines of the rather unusual family dynamic that she lives in. Yes. That made it feel like it was normalizing to a certain extent their family. I agree. And that part of it uh, I found progressive and interesting. You know, I found that to be... Yeah, I agree. I, and groundbreaking in its way. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's explored. I, I, you know, I don't know how much it's explored in this kind of family friendly comedy. It's certainly explored in like you know, sex movies a lot. This mm-hmm. sort of the idea of the thruple, sure, you know that kind of thing. But normally, you know, in a, in more in reference to like sexual practices than family, yeah, arrangements. So, it's yeah. I mean, it's. It's really, it's really interesting. I found it again very, very thought provoking. Um, it reminded me of both the potential of the '90s and the tragedy of it, of mm-hmm. it kind of descending into this sort of neoliberal ideal of what we all should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's skipping way ahead. I got a question for you. Yeah. Do you have a penis? <laughs> that's what I thought your line was going to be. <laughs> that's something I remember from from seeing it. In, from seeing it the first time? Let's, let's say 91. Um, there are some yeah, moments that, that really had me laughing out loud in this movie. Uh, Ted Danson arriving to the school interview as Dracula and saying, good afternoon. Really got, really got me. Mary saying, not, not, not even necessarily Mary saying... <laughs> Do you have a penis? But mm-hmm. when Sylvia takes her to the bathroom and she comes mm-hmm. back shaking her head at both men, that really yeah. got me. I that yeah. I I laughed out loud. I had to pause the film. And something you know, just to sort of to talk overall about how the movie works. Something that is crucial to remember is that the individual performances are great, and everyone works together well. Mm-hmm especially the central trio. Yeah. And it's a marriage of content and style. So we're told that this this is like a harmonious unit like they they they're like three kinds of masculinity all working together in the most cooperative right. and positive way. And that's kind of going on with the acting as well. It's like they're they're uh, they make up for each other's not that any of them have deficiencies, but they right, they yeah. kind of they slip in and out of different roles in the in in the film in the trio yeah in the same way they're supposed to in this family and you know if you pick this if you'd have picked three other actors it wouldn't have worked like this I I yeah I agree with you even you know the the glue that is Steve Gutenberg <laughs> is just as important as the other you know that I I obviously do not admire Steve Gutenberg as much as I admire Ted Ted Danson or Tom Selleck mm-hmm. but it's I, his place in this movie is essential. Yeah, absolutely. And he 
plays it as well as anyone. Sure. He plays his character as well as anyone. He gets a little bit Police Academy in some of the reaction shots, but... <laughs> you know, you hired Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> you hired Steve Gutenberg. What yeah. do you expect? I remember so much of this movie that I even remember... I remember Gutenberg talking about, like, press press for this movie. Hmm. And I remember him having this joke about, hey, listen, like, if you make a great movie, you've earned one more sequel. But when you're doing five or six or seven and citizens are going on patrol or you're going to Moscow, that's just ridiculous. And he got a good heavy laugh, you know? <laughs> that's a remarkable degree of self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget Steve Gutenberg saved, saved us all from nuclear Armageddon. Not, yes, please. Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna leave it I'm just gonna leave it there. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave that footnote hanging. You can you can research that, but yeah. <laughs> it's I'm not joking. <laughs> um It's I think also, you know, to add to that, no it's not just the the trio that are working well the way they're interacting with Mary is really important as well there's lots of kind mm -hmm. of easygoing improv heavy moments yeah where they're just interacting with her and it's very loose and there's not much going on but they really matter because they're the character first of all the three men are reintroduced through her mm -hmm. and so we need need to she needs to have a moment with all of them and uh that is really, I think that's really well handled. Mm. All of that, the the tummy raspberry and the yeah, right. Um, and what do you think about Sylvia? Nancy Travis is mm -hmm. Sylvia. I've always liked her in these movies. I was going to ask you what you think about her accent. <laughs> well, it's less her accent, which is serviceable. Okay. Um. But the fact that she's a fake British character who has fake British qualities, like the inability to cook. Yeah, right. It's like the doubling down on the on the fake. But you know that it's like <laughs> Yeah. I don't I can't remember if that, that you know, when you said earlier you was like I have questions, I thought, Oh my god, it's been so long since I've seen three men and a baby. Mike's gonna tell me there isn't even a baby in three men and a baby. <laughs> That was going to be a bad news bears situation. Oh no, yeah, man. you're okay. Um, do they? Do they? Do, do you remember the three men and a baby? Is she a is she a terrible cook in that as well, or was that just a? No, I mean she does. She doesn't have enough screen time for you to get to know her in that way. Oh, this is a new quality. Yeah. Wow, they didn't really overthink that, did they? No, but. I mean, um, and it's interesting. It, like, it's low it, hanging reminds... fruit. It's low hanging script writing fruit. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I kept the... thinking, because, you know, they're they're doing it for the laziest type of joke. Yeah. And yet they're extending that joke by showing... It's a runner. It's a runner. You, you see, a, like, a practice within the house of yeah. how they throw away food without her knowing it, which means they're mm. all just going hungry and wasting a lot of money on food. <laughs> yeah you know it's hard to believe tom Selleck retains that physique right eating nothing yes and so <laughs> you know at a certain point after five years i would think somebody would say 
how about I cook dinner? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, it's also, I mean, again, that's, that's a, another sort of, that's a, another area where it feels quite dated. Like none of them are taking the lead in the kitchen. Mm. It's like, there are still some gender barriers. Yeah. Right. Even in this progressive yeah. family unit, there's right. still a division of, of gender labor. Yes. That even this terrible, terrible cook is still, is still the making the, the food. Yeah, it's still the go-to um, chef in the house. It, I mean, this this also but this reminded me of a lot of um, a lot of other media in the time, mostly te- television shows that were aimed at like yuppie audiences, like Thirty mm-hmm. Something, sure, or um, Northern Exposure, specifically with um, Steve Guttenberg's character being a cartoonist, and he keeps insisting he's a satirist. I thought. That's yeah. something I could imagine in an episode of Thirty Something. Sure. Um, so there's that going on, which is very much of the period. Um, and yeah, and this and this part of the movie is, I guess, closer to the original, in a lot of senses. And I had a thought once. Once I don't want to skip to midway through the movie, but once once the We're movie was over, anyway. I realized. Not quite. No, we're not. We're not getting through this very fast. Um, <laughs> but it occurred to me that this was a sort of a, you know, this was a beneath the planet of the apes situation where the first half of the movie is sort of a speed through, right? Yeah. Sometimes literally, of the original yes. movie, and then the second half is a completely different property. Yeah. The thing so it's that kind of conf- it's kind of that type of sequel. The thing that I found very interesting watching this movie is that, you know, there are scenes of convenience which I which I mentioned earlier that set up obstacles for the characters and problems. She's got a boyfriend. We'll say nothing of the fact that it's a director sleeping with her actor, <laughs> with his actor. But there's a great there's a great meta moment where. Uh, Ted Danson gets closer to the camera when he says he's a director. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, at the time, when it happened, I was like, no, oh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. And then at the end of the movie, he looks into the lens. The and lens like, of no, the that camera. was probably intentional. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, so anyway, they we have these moments, you know, so many scenes feel kind of in this portion of the movie feel truncated and short and they're just so mm-hmm. that we can show you just enough narrative information so that we can get to England basically. Yeah. Uh, we show Nancy Travis dancing with the boyfriend and he just says, marry me, marry me, marry me. But it doesn't yeah. seem like a serious conversation they've been having. It seems like something she's definitely trying to keep him at arm's length for. Yeah. And then the next morning she's walking down the stairs practicing saying, I'm going to get married, that kind of thing. But well, to 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 your um, the movie. The movie creates problems and then deals with them. Mm-hmm. Point. Um, that was something I found that she and Jack look like they're sort of still together in the way they act towards each other. And then you get the scene with the with the her director boyfriend. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so is she dating them both? See, but I and think... Then the mo- and then the movie has a conversation where it's like, no, the only reason Jack and her are like that is because they're both actors. Yeah. Which I think is another great method. That is a great... Of, yes, that is fantastic. It. 
but there, you know, I, I thought it was, I, I really enjoyed watching because it's there to me. It's there on screen. The director got the performances out of the actors way early in this movie. Yeah. There are moments where Tom Selleck is just looking at Nancy Travis and you think, mm-hmm. oh, I know what's going on. He's interested. And you can see the same thing from her. And then, of course, we have yeah. this big scene of them doing the Rainmaker together where it's plainly obvious to everyone except the two characters. Also plainly obvious that Tom Selleck knows what bad acting is. Yes! He just chooses not to do it. I was just (laughs) going to say, as a sidebar to that particular scene, I thought it was remarkable that Tom Selleck was was able to act as a non-actor trying to act. It's a real test. And it's, yeah, like, I thought, yes, I thought I really was watching Peter the Architect try something. And then within that is a subtext of what he's feeling for this woman. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a lot of layers in a Three Men and a Little Lady sequel, you know, character wise. And I thought that was really fun to watch. And I don't, and I don't mind. I I think it's a good choice for the movie for him to take the reins as the romantic lead of the film. Uh huh. I thought in sequel terms, it's a good place for this story to go. Yeah. yeah. The political undertones of it are whatever they are, but as a sort of as a straightforward narrative, I thought this was this was taking advantage of of it being a sequel and needing somewhere to go with the yeah. with the romance. Yeah. Uh, or even just kind of making it a romance between two people, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of you know this is this is a, a, a point I think we're sort of skirting around is just how how developed this is as a, as a as a sequel. Yeah, because a lot of the comedy is based on things that they that the characters have done in previous in previous movies. movies sure, right. So when Ted thousand dollars, if you'll do it. Have I ever let you down? Yes, right. You know, the joke is we know he has. That was the ba- Yes, <laughs> that of course. That was the, the basis movie. of the entire last <laughs> He movie. let everyone down. And and when Sheila Hancock as as uh as um Sylvia's mother comes in, yes. and you know, says where's Jack He's spreading his seed no doubt. <laughs> yes. Well, not not only not only is it, you know, capitalizing on what we know about the character from the previous movie, uh Ted Danson really cornered the sperm donor father movie craze of the early nineties. <laughs> this and made made in America, right? And Cheers, yes. Because he isn't he a sperm donor for Rebecca as well in that in, I think in so. Cheers and and then Made in America is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um. So this this you know that this uh, this movie really thinks about how it can use being a sequel mm-hmm. to get where it needs to go. Well, and I want to get back to a previous point because I, earlier I was talking about, you know, you can see the machinations of a, a script that needs to get you just where it needs to go and it wants to give you a scene that gives you just enough information for that. And in, so in some ways this movie can feel clunky, but always dispersed mm-hmm. within that, for me at least, there's always a poignant scene her calling mm. them out where, you know, she just needs one moment of them completely and totally supporting her. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are few scenes in this movie and they're, they're 
they're nicely placed with with you know sporadically through the movie where mm-hmm. there are poignant scenes with actors doing really good work that really make yeah. me lean in and it's good i mean it's just flat out good in those moments yeah. the actors are really selling it and you can see the depth of the relationships in the characters you feel like they've been together for five years. Mm-hmm. And I love that about this movie. Yeah, I, th- I absolutely. I think it, I think those are really um, standout moments and it kind of glosses over the fact that there's a contradiction in the heart of the movie that the tension is about men who can't grow up, mm-hmm. except we spend a whole movie. Yeah getting them to the point where they grew up and they're now parents and yeah. they're now able to reflect on parenting. Right. So we have right. that great scene between uh, uh, Mary and um, Andrew. Is that Tom Selleck's name? No. What's no, he's name? Peter. Peter. Um, describe it. You know, he, he basically describes the previous movie <laughs> to the person it happened to. Who yes. just happened to be too young to know what was happening to them. And that's a great yeah. sequel moment. Right. Because you can't have that scene in any other movie. <laughs> right. And I think it's it's uh, it's beautifully it's like capitalizing on the fact that you can have a character who can be who can be recapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> By virtue of them being too young to remember what happened. Um But I mean it's it's sort of it's got that speed through quality. We we get a yes, sense pretty yeah. early on where this is going. We we know we there's going to be a move to England coming up, right? And then you've got the you know you're like okay, well that's another sequel convention. We're relocating, relocating, to country sure. To switch things up. Um, so you can sort of see where it, it's going, uh, and we've just got to kind of get through the the machinations, the machinations, and once they, um. Once they leave, once Sylvia and Mary get in the car at the exact halfway point of the film, yes, I might add, uh, <laughs> there's a sequel inside this sequel. Yes, right. Um, once we once we kind of uh, get to that midpoint, we have a kind of a reset where they become the three men that we ha- saw at the beginning of sure. Three Men and a Baby for a, like a scene. For a scene, but I do like yeah. the sense that. No, I, I mean I like that. I, I yeah. like it's sort of like, it's like do that asks the question. It's like, well, do we just reset? Mm-hmm. And then they realize, oh no, we changed yes. to different people. Right. It's interesting. I like the moment where they try to recapture what they had before they were parents and realize that being a parent fundamentally changed them in ways that they appreciate. And they even take the moment, like, for previous friends that might have been at their parties, they say, because mm-hmm. they're all married and have kids now, and they're doing stuff, and that's why they didn't come to their party. Yeah. And they, they realize, one, this isn't yeah. who we are. This isn't, and it's not what we want. But yeah. once we do get to England, I think this movie, all there. there's a weird thing that happens with this movie where you you feel as though there is a, an artif- there's a clock ticking, but there's not. But it's a it's a totally different, it's a totally different movie with a totally different style of comedy. Yeah, 
as soon as they get to England because the 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 comedy so far has been character based, yeah, familial domestic familial comedy, mm-hmm. and now it's the comedy of cultural misunderstanding. Sure, to the end of the film, <laughs> yes. that's a different movie. Yeah, with a different understanding of comedy of what co- yes exactly <laughs> what, what comedy, comedy is no i also i really like the party scene there... I, I loved i loved that the, the catering was stressed so much yes right like nothing says a swinging bachelor party like pasta salad mm-hmm. um and it's broad you know it's really broad like this movie is a lot of the time but, sure you know the 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 montage of gutenberg showing the pictures and not being able to talk about anything but mary and mm-hmm. then rubber ducky coming on the sound system yeah that makes the point sure efficiently that they're out of step and shows us that you know they've they've matured beyond their original characters which is what you want sequel characters to do yeah without losing a sense of who they are and this does that Mm -hmm. well but this is the last time character even matters in the movie i mean it's you know it's funny because you have that scene, and I would never want to take that scene out. But you already have, you already know that about the characters, and you even get it in a previous scene. Yeah, but they don't know it about themselves. That's true. That's true. And there's yeah. a, but there's a great scene between Tom Selleck and Mary, between Peter and Mary, when they're just mm-hmm. by themselves, and it's a great parenting moment where mm-hmm. it felt so honest in the sense of she's worried about being separated from the family dynamic that she has now. And he has to teach yeah. her that we're always going to be with you no matter what. Even if we're separated by an ocean, we're still in your hearts. And so we get to see that maturation. We get to see that in a character. And we know that all three men have gone through that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you're right in the sense that it's followed by the characters understanding that. Yeah. And and of course, there's also the great scene of where he... where. Um... Peter confronts Mary. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly weaponizes what happened in the last movie. Right. And it, it, what struck me then was like, it's funny how sequels don't use that kind of ammunition. Mm-hmm. I thought the same often. thing. I thought it was what a great. What a great, like, you know, it's, it, there's like a hundred times in a, in a Halloween movie you could go. Yeah. Well, you let Michael. You left the door unlocked. Prison. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Don't you lecture me on yeah. leaving the door locked, <laughs> Mister Michael Myers, let it go. Uh, but again, that's really good sequel writing. It's and good sequel I writing, suppose... and beyond that, it's just good dramatic. It's a great dramatic moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because and it's you know it speaks to the. It... Again, it's sort of, it's like the conservative voice. Like it, it, it's the it's the too conservative side that they want to get away from. It's the sort of the there is the I'm skirting around it. It's the Reaganite <laughs> perspective, isn't it? It's sort of like you're you're a bad mother, right? You neglected your child. You know, it's like the, all the stuff that Reagan was saying to women who were on welfare. Yeah, right. And, you know the, so what they want to come up with is something which is like, okay, maybe not as drastic as that. Mm-hmm. But let's take the elements of that, walk it back a little bit, and meet in the middle. That's <laughs> yes, right. Hello, my name is Tony Blair. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on. But I love that this is a sort of a 
a line in the sand that gets us into the gets us into the second act. Into the you're right. The second act is because it really is a two act movie. Yeah, the second act is fucking bananas. It's crazy. It's a different movie, and, and yet... it's, it it doesn't feel it it doesn't feel like everything that happens up to this point feels like a movie that could that comes from nineteen ninety. Yeah. What happens after that feels like a comedy from a later 1940s. Well, it's like 1940s mixed with mid-1990s British okay. comedy. All right. And so we're, look, we're looking... Yeah, exactly. We're looking back to... We're look, you know, we're looking back to um, the Philadelphia story. Yeah, right. But we're also yeah, right. looking forward to four weddings and a funeral. Sure. At the same time. Um, and so... I mean, them driving there with the sheep and the guy you can't understand, and... Also, another vivid memory, it just clicked as soon as I saw the image, I was just like... I mean, aside from the fact that I'm pretty sure that shot was reused for the opening of Austin Powers, (laughs) I... As soon as I saw it, I was like, God, I remember seeing this in, you know, in the early night. But it doesn't rub you at all. It doesn't doesn't bother you. As a British man. (laughs) I mean, not not in a like it doesn't wound my yeah it does it doesn't wound my cultural pride. I think it goes back and forth between between lazy stereotypes. Yeah, it's just all and then it, the low hanging fruit. Well, then, it, but then occasionally you get a sense that they're aware that they're, they're self aware about the stereotype. Yeah, I agree. Like, there, there are a few moments kind of thrown in there where you're like, they're saying things that are so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know that even they know it's not true yeah. about British people, and there's a few there's a, f- a few things like that in the in there, and then other times, like you say, it is just the sort of the sort of low hanging fruit cultural stereotypes, national stereotypes, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's just it's it's sort of I kept thinking like I don't know how successful this movie necessarily was, but you can draw a direct line. From this to four weddings and a funeral, and then Notting Hill, and then mm-hmm. they definitely they feel like they're road testing <laughs> this kind of comedy that will go on to be incredibly successful, incredibly popular. The 90s. Yeah, and at times even scooping them. Yeah, well, I think Ted Danson's vicar scoops Rowan Atkinson's <laughs> four weddings right. priest. <laughs> well, and I also think. There's one character that just steals the show from here on out, and that's Fiona Shaw. She's excellent. She's, She's so, just. I mean, there was um. There was a moment I was I was watching her and I was like, I bet Phoebe Waller Bridge watched this mm-hmm. when she. I think we're probably around the same age. If not, she's if if not, I might be a little older, but I think we're I think we're the same, roughly of the same generation. I bet she saw Fiona Shaw doing this, and she was like, "That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do." Right. And when I have some power, I'm going to write a role for her where she's just a badass. Yeah. <laughs> and hence, that's how Killing Eve came about. Sure. I guarantee you, because there's so much Phoebe Waller Bridge in her performance style. Yeah. Right. In in those in exactly that sort of character where she takes this this trope of the ugly girl for want of a better word mm-hmm. and makes it all her own to the point where even the movie has to admit no you're an attractive no you're woman. pretty attractive yeah 
There's something about yeah. you that is just fun and yes, desirable. Yes, that, that is alluring. And even this even this stupid way that this role has been written right. can't drag you down. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, why don't we take another break and then we'll come back and finish up. And we'll we'll cross the pond. We will cross the pond, sir. We gotta talk about um senile butlers. Boy do we. <laughs> now that's a runner. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think it was meant to be. <laughs> we'll be right back. Right back after this. I like to think I know something about beer. But nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. Here we are, once again. Tom and I are chatting about three men and a little lady finishing up with the me- or uh, the movie directed by Emil Artelino. Or the Emil directed by Movie Artelino. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Makes as much sense. I'll say. Sentence. <laughs> are you on my page where, narratively, we get into some trouble? In this half of the movie, I'm impressed you can find a narrative. Okay, yeah, it's I mean, just a, it's just a, it's just a series of, it's just a comedy of eccentric manners and cultural. Yeah, not just that, but I guess the, you know, I, I spoke earlier about once we get to England, it feels like we have some manufactured time problems. I mean, they're driving in that car <laughs> through the sheep as <laughs> though they're going to stop the wedding. But they're not. <laughs> they're just getting right. to the castle, you know. Yeah, I see. And then what you we have to the ticking clock. Yeah. Yeah, we have to we have to leave to get the information from the prep school, and yeah. get back in time, and then go back a second time so that we can finally get to the moment where we interrupt the wedding. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. So it's I mean, that it's is problematic. That, when you put it and like even that, once characters that... decide that they're in love with each other. They could end everything by just saying, I'm in love with you. You shouldn't marry this man and instead do something else, you know? Yeah. Uh, the way the the way you put it there, it, it, it sort of sounds like this should have been a set piece. Yeah. And they've turned it into a, a, a half of the movie. A half of a movie, right. Literally half of the movie. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, what's working in their favor is that there is still some work 
between that Peter and Sylvia have to do because of what he said right. to her. Yeah. So without that, it would be even it would be even more problematic. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, great scene. His apologizing. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And and also this movie this half of the movie does have one of my favorite, if not my favorite, scene in the movie, which is. I don't know if I should bring it up yet because we're not <laughs> such a tease. Quite there. <laughs> it's like talking to J.J. Abrams. Never explain, <laughs> sets stuff up, and never explains what it is. Listen, Fucking mystery boxes over there. Um, uh, uh, this this podcast is not a delivery system for your hatred of J.J. Abrams. If it, if it was a J. <laughs> All right. I agree. It's just become that through time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if it, no, if this was J, if this was uh, J. J. Abrams talking about three men and a little lady, he'd never get around to the little lady. And right. he'd talk about maybe two and a half. I, I can tell men. you. I'm happy to tell you what it is. No, 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 it's fine. I'm just. I'm. I'm All right. Like, like you say, I'm just. I'm just using this uh, as a political platform. <laughs> <laughs> as well you know you've seen through me no yes. let's talk about the movie in order like we always do <laughs> um in addition to the second half being the beneath the planet of the apes mm-hmm. lore unto itself um it's also like a to the best of my memory and it's been a while since i've seen three men and a baby and I'm excited to go back and watch it, especially remembering it's a Leonard Nimoy film. Um, yes. Is that it, this This feels like a mirror to, of the first movie because mm. Danson, Danson's absent throughout most of that movie, isn't he? And, there, and he's, suddenly, yeah, right. he's absent again. Yes, yeah. There so is it feels that. like we're sort of we're doing the kind of ring theory thing of mm-hmm. going around, going full circle. And he keeps there, popping. No, pop, there is no crime to solve in this movie. Pop. He's like popping in with in with colorful costumes. Yes, right. Which I remember him doing in the first movie as well. I love the guy calling him Chiquita Banana or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and the, I mean, we've gushed we've gushed over Danson, but I haven't mentioned that you know the one of the great running. Well, again, with Danson, it's not a gag; it's a character thing of yeah. him being schmoozed by um right her what is he called andrew no what's his name the boyfriend yeah edward edward right of course he's called edward (laughs) by the way peak period for the british bounder oh yeah you know edward is such a like you know that episode of seinfeld where uh, lane has a british boyfriend and he's kind of steals all the money and just drinks all her drinks all her booze uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. exploits her apartment and they have a conversation where I say, Yes, he's one of those bounders <laughs> And I think I think Edward is cut from the same cloth. Um But anyway, the whole idea of he's being schmoozed by Edward and you know the the run the runner, the character runner of Am I a good enough actor to fool you? Mm-hmm. It's all like yeah. you know. It's like it's like people really believed I was constipated, and that oh, like it's man. such a great character thing to carry through the entire movie. Yeah, 
And the fact that it's Danson doing it means that you're invested in it in a way you wouldn't necessarily be with another actor. Mm-hmm. I think, anyway. But that, oh, no, that's I know, like, I agree with you. There's not much that carries through the movie um, because this movie's so divided against itself, but that's definitely mm-hmm. one of them. That, that that's really, for sure. It goes through. Because you get, yeah. the most ama- you, get, you get the most amazing payoff of that at the, <laughs> in the final uh. scene. One of the most unexpected... <laughs> scenes in probably cinema history um for various reasons um there were a lot of basically there were a lot of revelations here for me in this second half of the movie Mm. as soon as i saw the mini the red mini and the sheep yeah i visualized a motorbike and sidecar so i knew that was coming yeah right which is crazy, given because I, I forgot been, about the sheep. But I would have been nine the last time I saw this film. Okay, I forgot about the sheep, but it clicked like you said. I didn't it know clicked how the moment a motorbike and sidecar were going to factor into the story, but I knew. I it was see coming. that that I remembered clear as a okay. bell. I knew that we were getting to the church in a motor motorcycle and sidecar. But I knew it was going to happen at some point. You know, it's like yeah. like deja vu. I knew mm-hmm. it was it was coming. Absolutely. At one point, they say that that the boarding school is in West Riding. So I was age 40 when I realized this film is set in the county that I grew up in. (laughs) I can't believe that you didn't glom onto that as a kid. It's a little young to be like... It certainly didn't... (laughs) Certainly didn't wow. seem like where I grew up. <laughs> the world they were in. Uh-huh. And in addition to that, just the mere mention of boarding school in this film sent a chill mm-hmm. down me. Oh. And I realized that when I saw this when I was nine years old, this instilled a kind of innate fear of boarding school in me. And again, it was like a prem- it, it was like a deja vu moment because I went as soon as I started to talk about boarding school, it's like I feel a little bit sick. Why oh, do wow. I feel sick? And then, of course, you get the scene where they go to the boarding school and it's like a prison. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. And you can imagine being the same age and seeing that, and sure. how it would instill a fear into you. But it was like a pro- you know, it was like primeval kind of. Well, and the. The thing that like it made I... me feel physically sick, and I didn't know why. And then I saw the scene. I guess at nine, I must have seen this and been physically repulsed by it. And now I'm feeling right. the after effects of that. Crazy. The thing that, the thing that made <laughs> that the questions that kept popping in my head when we find when we do go to the boarding school, is yeah. knowing that this very charming effervescent woman is in I charge know. of the boarding Doesn't school. Doesn't work, does it? And yet says, you know, keeps keeps kind of hinting at characters and vicariously the audience that this is all very British and what we do and very important. Yeah. We bring out, you know, it's, you know, what we do is we, we turn out great young men and women through I this think, process. Honestly, honestly but it that, that there's a, there's something it, that like you, there's just doesn't work when you have yeah that character in charge. I think it took the Harry Potter book and film franchise to sort of reinvigorate children's faith in the idea of boarding In the school. idea of a boarding Because they would school. leave this film absolutely terrified of the prospects. Yeah. Because it is, it's like, it's, it's, it's like the antagonist, isn't it? It's like, she's going to go to boarding school and, I don't know, end up hanging herself like the boy ghost in the last movie. 
Right, right. <laughs> Had to get that in somewhere. How dare There's you? There's a chance we'll never talk about it, so I gotta mention <laughs> the boy ghost. Um, Such a dick. <laughs> So there was lo- there was lots of you know there was lots for me to psychologically dig into. <laughs> this mm-hmm. was a this was a real therapy session for me. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course Fiona Shaw is in the Harry Potter films. She's uh, yeah. She's Harry's uh, uh, um, aunt. Aunt, yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so we're somewhere in a board. <laughs> Somewhere in a boarding school, Fiona Shaw's falling over tables, trying to be solitary. Yes. Amazing, amazing stuff. So Great work from her. So and she, you know good. Sheila Hancock has a has a you know a, more of a thankless role in this movie, but she's got a few good jabs, a few good one-liners. Here. I do. I agree. Yeah. I love. I love her I, independent of this, but I think she's mm-hmm. great. Well, I thought um, it was class. Really, both. Class. I thought it was really interesting that a one-note character went beyond one note because there are moments where Sylvia's mother is saying this wouldn't happen to do with a tall man with a mustache Mm -hmm. and that shows she knows her daughter. Yeah. You know? It's it's really good. I I think the and again this is where sort of Tom Selleck's innate acting ability like he, he knows he knows to take it down when Fiona Shaw's around. So you get yeah. this wonderful interplay of him being very dour and straight and understated yeah. and her being really kind of zany and hurried and frazzled. Oh, I got to tell you, they got a big laugh out of me when she opened up that closet and just sort of the morose <laughs> sitting Yeah, absolutely. Closet, yeah. You know, knowing he's almost knowing he's going to get caught. But, oh, but it's you know like he has to make a choice, doesn't he, to play it all play yeah. it all down? Uh, yeah. And one of my favorite one of my favorite comedic moments in the film is um, is when you get to the motorbike and sidecar, and the t- this is really good just comic timing, but it's an interplay of three different timings. So you've mm. got Tom Selleck who is mo- who is slow. Well, in fact, he's stationary. <laughs> Right. Fiona Shaw is checking a watch and you know yeah, looking right, up and right. down. She's and busy. She's to... busy. And then and then the motorbike and sidecar is going at medium pace, so it's <laughs> it's like meeting in the middle between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I did more than the you know the shot of well not them but whoever the stunt people, uh, like appearing yeah. for the first time. That's the funnier bit in that sequence. Mm-hmm. Um. It's yeah. It's so there's there's still some good there's still some good comedic stuff in this in this yeah. section, but it's kind there's of the still movie some funny sort of fall, stuff. It's but... it's fallen away in a in a in a big way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, here's not... some here's something. Yeah, that struck me. How much American movie comedy is based around the idea of jilting a spouse at the altar? Yeah, I know, right? I mean, Philadelphia Story. Hmm. Graduate, this, four weddings and a funeral, mm-hmm. which I guess is British American, Notting Hill, or, you know, it just like, and, you know, not to mention just that, I mean, the, the the comedies that are just comedies of remarriage, which was, I think, the term Robin Wood came up with, 
to describe mm. a lot of rom-coms that were about people um, remarrying, like yeah. His Girl Friday and uh, right, The sure, Awful sure. Truth. Um, the Runaway Bride. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. It's like, this is a real weird pattern that needs investigating. So you don't get that a lot? You don't get it? There's, that's not a British thing? It's It's unique to America? Not necessarily, but I think, you know, the, the classic example for me is the Philadelphia story. That must be yeah, one of the sure. first examples of it. Hmm. Um, and that's why it's kind of crucial that they set up earlier in the movie that... Do we know... Did we know before that Tom Selleck had an ex-wife? No. And so we're getting into the area of... The, the part that I, that I was mentioning earlier that I really love, because this is the part that... I mean, we already yeah, talked about the motorbike. Crucial. We already talked about the motorbike, which is what sends, you know, this the scene I'm about to talk about sends him to the prep school for a second time to try to find mm -hmm. the evidence. But it's this scene between him and Ted Danson because we get a lot more of information. Speaking to sequel writing, we find out that these three men have been living together for at least seven years, five years with mm -hmm. Mary and Sylvia, but it's... It's Jack and it's Peter that are best friends. Yeah. That's not information given previously. Hmm. And you find out, I, you, well, he has a scene with Sylvia earlier in the movie where you found out that he was previously married. Mm -hmm. But you find out more about that marriage in this scene. And mm -hmm. you find out, you know, the things that don't seem to make sense that I referenced earlier. Like you could just have one conversation and this whole movie's yeah. over. But you get a character reason here yeah. Yeah, where Tom I think Selleck. That's important. It's really important for me to not completely dismiss the movie or so much of the movie because mm -hmm. you get a character reason where he's he's afraid. He's afraid he's yeah. gonna not that he could mess up Ted, you know, Jack's life, mm -hmm. Michael's mm -hmm. life, and his own life. He thinks he'll fuck it up again, yeah. and it's too much for him to bear, so he won't take the risk. Mm -hmm. And then what on top of all that, I love that, A, the character that Ted Danson is playing in Jack can see that in him because they're so close. Yeah. And then we even have a moment, which I think is really progressive for a 1990 movie, where one man says to you, to the other man, I love you. Yeah. And it's not, I love you, man. It's not, love you, mm -hmm. buddy. It's not, I, they don't cut the eye off. He says, I love you. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing for a movie from 1990 because male love, platonic love, is not represented very often on film. And I found this moment to be so sweet and so endearing and so progressive. I really... And they're both acting the shit out of it. Yeah. I thought it was great. And and in general, I think I think all of them do a, do a great job and the screenplay does a great job of suggesting alternate kinds of masculinity yeah that don't have to do with machismo mm -hmm. um because with, ted with, danson's with, character jack is as flagrant a womanizer as mm. you can have in a movie but it's yeah. not wrapped up in machismo no no absolutely it's yeah. who he is as a person yeah. that's you yeah. know so i think i think the, the movie's pretty good at um showing a broad spectrum of masculinity and where, yeah. you know, and where it dovetails with traditional ideas about masculinity and femininity and, mm -hmm. you know, breaks down some of those, uh, 
those uh, barriers between them in quite a fluid way that doesn't necessarily doesn't you know isn't doesn't feel like transvestitism or anything like that yeah right uh although he does dress up as carmen miranda at one point <laughs> yeah uh, or chiquita banana i yeah. guess um speaking to the uh that that this is still the 80s even though it's 1990 my parents were married in 1986 and the mm-hmm. bride and flower girl dresses that uh, Sylvia and Mary were wearing looked exactly the same. Oh, so wow. Nice. Like, we're basically still in the 80s. They got that right. Oh, yeah, we got to talk about the senile butler. Yeah. They get a lot of comic mileage out of this, I'll say. I'll say that for them. They definitely do. But did you feel like this was a one-time gag that sort of... Sort of sprawled into a runner oh sure <laughs> I, can't I mean by the time to look at it by the time we get to the end he's doing a one-man wave mm-hmm. in the church like yeah. at a sporting event that is mm-hmm. even for a senile old man it doesn't make sense yeah right <laughs> you know <laughs> so that's how far the joke goes yeah and it's one of those things where you can see that it makes the movie you know, we talked earlier about this movie sitting at 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. And moments like that, I think, are a, a cheap, easy way for a critic to knock this movie down a yeah, little bit. Absolutely, yeah. And it's... not give it the credit that it it really deserves. Right. In terms of both being a sequel and a movie with plenty of great character work. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of good writing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So the, in that way, I, I it bums me out that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it delves into that, th- those tendencies, you know. Also, you know, it would have been very successful, like if it was just, if it was just the first joke, it would have, it would have landed very well. Because that yeah, joke right. lands, of yeah. him sort of saying, you know, try to take a leak in that, and it's like, oh, it's terrible. Yeah, That's right. Like, That's really all you need. That's all you but needed. It just keeps going and going mm-hmm. and going, and in every scene, there's something else. I would have accepted that and him just playing hide and seek or hot and cold with Mary. Well, p- pissing in the bathroom is pretty good. Yeah, because that is that is sort of I don't know. It's just like actual civility. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not a joke, really. It's just no. It's just inappropriate behavior. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think that joke lands better if he doesn't come out of the bathroom without his pants on. Oh, well, yes. If I, I just, like, I had to piss, so I pissed. <laughs> I'm a, I'm at least an 85-year-old butler. What could you possibly expect of me? Yeah. Now, let's talk the prosthetic Protestant. Okay. Ted Danson, <laughs> showstopper for this movie. Oh, man. I mean, I absolutely remember it. Yeah. But I, right? I, my, I think I have a feeling my reaction to it now and my reaction to it then were the same, which is that it scared me. I didn't find it funny. 
or cute. I just think it's a bit creepy. I don't think you're wrong. I think they missed the mark tonally. I am. Not to say that Danson isn't doing a great, great work. Right. That's the thing that's interesting to me. I can't. I'm of two minds of the vicar because there's Mm -hmm. a part of me that thinks there's no way Sylvia wouldn't know that that's Ted Danson, that, that that's Jack. There's just no way. And yet I also revel in the Ted Danson performance of it. Yes. The hiccups and and in the his, dialogue is good too. The dialogue, like the hiccups in his speech, yeah. the him, you know, thinking he's seeing something, not seeing something. Yeah. And you realize, of course, for the, the character, he's just trying to, yeah. to delay. And all of it plays and all of it plays as funny. I think Ted Danson... I guess I feel like the makeup is so extreme because he he looks it's like a burn victim. It's legitimately terrifying. That it's so frightening that it actually delegitimizes his performance a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I 100% and agree. Because I think the performance is just fucking fantastic. Yeah, and the shades of it's looking back to Peter Cook in The Princess Bride. Yeah, very much, And it's yeah. looking forward to Rowan Atkinson in Four Wings and the sure. Funeral. And it's kind of and and it's very it's very funny. Um, I think they think that when he takes off his skin, that it should re- read a zany fun. But <laughs> yeah, to me, it's, it's pure body horror. It's completely frightening. It's terrifying. I mean, I took some stills of. Maybe we'll post them. <laughs> yeah. Of the shots of him taking his skin off, and you know, you told me that that was in. Hellraiser. <laughs> I believe. I'd be it. like, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, Especially the moment of taking off the top of the skull to reveal his hair. Yeah, and taking out his teeth, and teeth. I, I, I remember all of that viscerally, which tells me that they missed the mark. Because I remember that. <laughs> I remember that viscerally as a nine-year-old. <laughs> And that's I great. don't think that's what they were going for with that scene. Oh, man, that's great. Um, they even managed to throw in a great escape-style stunt. In the they do. This. Very much, um, yeah. And that I guess that's another point. You mentioned the senile valley, like, bums you out. I wouldn't say this necessarily bummed me out, but it made me think, have we come too far from the original movie? Mm. Like... Should it, should all this, like, sure, we're in a different kind of comedy in the second half of the movie. We've just got to accept yeah, right. that. But do we have to accept that we've strayed, that we've bastardized so what, what this and because, movie was also, about? Also because it's so intentional. Because he rides up to the fence exactly like McQueen rides up yeah. to the fence. And then rides away from it yeah. and then jumps it, you know? I don't know, is that a comment on the transatlantic nature of the film? I don't know, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, split with British and American actors. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's that, I, and as I say, like, you, you know, literally you've got to be along for the ride or, or not at mm-hmm. this point. Because you've had a whole half a movie yeah. of it. 
but it's the only pretty much the only point where i was like can you really claim to be a sequel to three men and a baby when you're doing this kind of stuff <laughs> but i don't know i mean this is a question we face all the time it's like how far can you stray from the original blueprint yeah right and still feel like you're part of the same world and it's hard but but it's also still doing that sequel thing of of being bigger so it it feels like it's raising stakes in a way yeah but there are no there's no action in the original no exactly but that's the that's so the you, thing that's you, weird about it this is what it, i mean know? like, like yeah. there's no there's no equivalent of this no um certainly not for the end of the movie that first movie has a weird subplot involving drugs and cops and drug dealers does it really god it's a while since i've yeah it's but, a while since I've seen it. <clears throat> That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe... I always remember that being one of the biggest complaints from critics for that first movie. Uh, and it it seems weird and inexplicable. They do mention the drugs in this one, don't they? At one do point. They? I think so. I think it's okay. thrown back... You know, because they, they like to weaponize things that people did yeah, wrong right, in the right. previous movie, and I think right. they throw that back at... Uh, is it... it Jack, right? Jack. Well, it's certainly within the scope of that comment of when have I ever let you down? I mean, the baby yeah. is, of course. But I think that's I that think is... that's the point where they say you did this and then you did yeah. this with drugs. Yeah. Okay. This movie does end with Danson looking directly into the camera, right into the camera. Which is but interesting. I got one more question oh, for you before oh, we get go to on. that. Go ahead. Yeah. Because we were speaking earlier about you know, the sort of paradigm of this movie and what it feels it must do, which is have two people actually get married at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that always bothers me is that these two people decide to just go on with a wedding in the church. Right. Despite the fact that half the people there were there to see the yeah. other man get married. That happens in and the Philadelphia story. So I guess yeah, it's... I guess it's it's leaning towards that. It's a trope. But for, but for this movie... And considering the fi- family dynamic that it had, I always, I oh, whenever I see it, I always wish that Tom Selleck would just say, marry me, don't marry me, whatever, just let's be together. You're the person that yeah. I love. And on top of that, we're all a family, you know? Yeah, and that's it. It's, 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 you end with a blended family, but one which is far less radical than the one that we started with. Yeah, right. And it does feel like the traditional institutions have have sort of returned. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, I, I think it's... Again, at that point, you just have to be alone for the ride. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, maybe. Don't you think It always that, just bums me out. The Tom Selleck's outfits in, in this movie are exactly what he would have worn as Indiana Jones in the Professor scenes. Probably. Again, I wish, wish there was a way. Wish there was a Bow way. Bowtie. I'd love to go back and see what would have happened. Is it too late? <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> no one would ever accept him as Indiana Jones now. 
how great if we made one more Indiana Jones movie with a really old Indiana Jones, but with Tom Selleck instead? He could be, uh, he could play basically play the role he played in the Rockford Files, where he could be Indiana Jones's mm. rival. Well, let me ask you this: Have you ever seen the Magnum PI episode? That's the Indiana Jones ripoff. No, I have never seen that. No, it's. If you want a little flavor okay. of Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones, you watch that episode. I remember it being fun. I'm sure because it is. It was a great... Manton P.I. was a great show. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, we do, we do get Ted Danson staring straight down the barrel of the camera. This is where it feels and, like... And this feels very 1980s. It also feels like the parody version of the movie. Yeah, yes. Um, but also, you know, I feel like I, Dance, Danson's been is the most meta character in the movie. Mm -hmm. Because he's an actor, because right. he's the clown, uh, because he's always on set in costumes. In costume, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it makes sense that he would be the one of any of them to look in the camera. Um, <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> Justifying it to myself. <laughs> but it does see, but like, I don't know. It feels like the whole film has been telling me that, that Tom Selleck is the lead of this movie. And then the final shot is of Ted Danson. So yeah, it's a little, right. a little incoherent. Yeah. But I think I'm, this movie and where knows. Does, where I think does this movie knows. Steve Gutenberg fit into all of this? Right. Um, and I wonder whether this was just like inspiration, like cut print, we got it, right? You know, yeah. like they they just saw the shot and was like, oh, we've got to make this the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, he's not really the lead of the movie. Uh, never mind. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, what about a credit check? Sure. <laughs> so here's a question. Do you think the five stuntmen credited here would readily admit to their buddies at the bar that they were part of three men and a little lady? I think so because I think I think they would they they would mention it. There would be some guffaws and then they'd say, "Hey, go watch the movie. We reenact a good the motorcycle jump." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, more people worked on ADR for this film than in virtually any other department. Which makes me wonder whether anyone actually speaks on film with a mm. microphone in this in this uh, in this movie. All right. Mister Danson's old vicar makeup designed by. <laughs> you are unlikely to get a more specific credit in all of film history than that. <laughs> Was it was the person undead themselves? I mean, he certainly looked he certainly looked like a supernatural being. Yeah. What's that? Um, trying to think of what it, what it is he looks like. You know what he looks like? He he looks like Kane. Yes, that's, that's it. What he looks like yeah. He looks like uh, he looks like the when it was uh, in the in. Sorry, everyone. 3. We're talking. We're going back to Poltergeist two. Well, he looks. I tell you what, he looks like he looks like 
uh, Poltergeist 3 when they just put that mask on that guy. <laughs> and said, this is Kane. This is Kane. <laughs> oh. Um, the three men rap. Was, yes, uh, I remember seeing that credit. Uh, G Love E <laughs> and Charlie Peters. Now, which of those two men do you think is a black rap artist, and which, and which do you think is, is a white, white film producer? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I am amazed that that anyone African American was involved in the creation of that piece of yeah. music. But there you go. All right. I thought the black scents that they were using just kind of ruled out any contribution by anyone authentic. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's it. That's my credit check. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) we've revisited. We started revisiting... Yeah. The single sequels from 1990, and that is three men. Nope, we got we got plenty of work to do. That's three men and a little lady. You're gonna have to tell us what you think of this movie, Tom. We haven't discussed it yet, but is this a good movie? Can can we save save that till the the wrap up episode? Do we have to? Do we have? You want to? Okay, we'll we'll save the wrap up. with this one, I need, I need context and perspective. Okay. Because as, for various reasons that I have discussed, I'm very attached to this film, in ways <laughs> I didn't understand, until seeing it recently, <laughs> and getting some serious flashbacks. All right. PTSD moments. Um. So. Well, I, stay I, tuned I, for that, everyone. I choose to reserve judgment until I've until I've reminded myself of what else is is on offer. Perfect. All right. Well, you can at least tell us what you think, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Send mm. us an email to everything sequel at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter, and send us a message. Let us know what you think of Three Men and a Little Lady. We got another 1990 sequel coming at you next week. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Say goodbye, Tom. You can't swing a dead cat around the British countryside without hitting a vicar. <laughs> I like that first vicar, too. I thought he was funny. Yeah, the, the, the food-obsessed... Uh, yeah. Um, kind of... Yeah, but is there any... What was it? He wanted salmon? But is mm-hmm. there any more salmon? <laughs> Yeah, as, a, as another good vicar, that yeah, was one of the good. lines that made me think they were they were aware that what that their representation of Britain ah. was intentionally stereotypical and not yeah, especially because Sheila Han- the way Sheila Hancock delivers it. All right, well that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week. Until then, two men in a single sequel. Ha, ha, ha.